in my heart there rings a melody, and hopefully that melody comes from the Lord. Uh, this morning what I want to do as we begin is, uh, in the honor of God's Word, is to stand in the reading of the God's Word. So if you'll stand, and I'll be reading from the book of Revelation in the section that we'll be looking at this morning and a few verses before that. Revelation chapter 1, beginning verse 17, and then into the passage we'll be seeing. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly. And I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Let's uh, look to the Lord who gave us this word and ask his blessing upon the study of it this morning. Father, we pray that we might understand your word to us as you gave that word to the church in in Asia Minor. Might we draw closer to you because of our time spent together. And we ask this in Christ's name. And God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Some of you might have Bibles that not only have black print, but they have certain sections where there is Red print, and it's a letter, red letter Bible. They'll describe it that way, and, and usually those are highlighted because people know the red letters are the words of Jesus. And, and in some ways, we have to be careful about that because really all of God's word is from God. He gave us His message to us. Uh, but as we think about it, the red letter parts of the Bible are not only in the Gospels. You also find it in the book of Revelation where Jesus is specifically speaking into the churches. And so if you have a red letter edition, you'll have red letters here because it's Jesus speaking to John who then speaks to the churches. Um, But as we look at it this morning, I want us to understand that that God has a message not only for them, but for us as well. Now, this is a particular Sunday, which is an interesting Sunday in a variety of different ways because it's Daylight Saving Time Sunday. And this is the Sunday in which all pastors are praying a little bit more fervently that you make sure that you set your clocks ahead. See, when it comes in the fall, I really don't mind. If you come an hour early, that's okay with me. I just don't want you coming an hour later. But I'm speaking to the choir this morning on that. But it's interesting. I discovered some interesting things about daylight saving time. 
is uh, this is a dangerous time of year. Did you read about that? They say on daylight saving time, when that all happens that weekend, the next day, Monday, is a heart attack day. There are more heart attacks that happen on the day following the weekend um, than any other time of the year. In fact, they say 24% more heart attacks happen on the Monday after daylight saving time than any other time. And vice versa, they say in the fall, 21% less heart attacks happen on the day following that. And you're asking yourself, well, why would that be? Well, uh, this was uh, written in the journal called uh, Open Heart. And in the journal of Open Heart, they said that heart attacks happen because of stressors, which must be related to stress. And they say stressors happen when you lose sleep. That sleep, uh, they, uh, in fact, I I wrote this down because I know I messed it up. Sleep um, disrupts the circadian rhythms. And interface with the interface with the cortisol levels in your body. Now, I have no idea what I just read, but that's what it does, all right? And these hormones that are released because of the rhythms and the, the levels that get changed are the things that allow you to monitor and manage stress in your body. So being the pastor that cares about all the people who, who come to our church, I just want you to be very careful about tomorrow, okay? And if you have chest pains or indigestion that lingers, be sure to drive quickly to the emergency room, right? You know, it, it's, it's interesting, all these details about, you know, things that happen on certain types of days. Uh, you know, you really are only supposed to turn your clock at what time? 2 a.m. Now, let me ask you, how many of you turned your clock at 2 a.m. this morning? Now, some of you had your clocks automatically do that, but uh, I don't think any of us probably did that. Um, it is interesting, they have done some studies, that, that when the time changes, 27% of the people surveyed say they were not arriving on time for one of their next appointments because of the change of time messing them up. But what's interesting to me, and this is why I tell you the story, one of the very significant things I told you about the book of Revelation, it's the book of Revelation, not the book of Revelation. Right? It's not plural in terms of the name of this book. It's singular. Now, I wonder if you know this um, lightly known truth, that it's not daylight savings time. It's daylight savings singular time. Isn't that interesting? Aren't you glad you came to church today? I mean, you learned something this morning. I didn't know that until I read that this week. Now, the reason it's important in the book of Revelation, at least devotionally, is it's, it's really a story about Jesus. It's really a proclamation about Jesus. There are revelations, plural, in the book of Revelation, singular. But we miss the point of the book if we don't focus on Jesus. And it presents the the message of what's about to happen and who is coming, as well as what is going to come. And so that is true even as we look at the book of Revelation in chapters 1 and 2. It presents Jesus first before it gives the message or messages to the individual churches. Now, so far, we've already looked at a couple messages to the churches um, in the individual churches that were uh, spoken to uh, by Jesus, to John, and then to the angel or pastor or messenger at the church. The first one is the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus was a great church. Uh, and it was, a, it was a, a very fruitful and faithful church that had done so many things for the cause of Christ. And, and yet, as Jesus was speaking to them, and, and it's interesting when you just kind of think through the whole process by which we get these messages, is that 
even though they were doing so, so well, Jesus can see those things that start to occur in our lives that if we're not careful, they can be fatal. And I'm not a you know, medical doctor or the son of a medical doctor, but you know, heart attacks don't happen overnight, do they? I mean, you might experience it overnight, but it, it happens over a period of time where the arteries or whatever it might be begin to become clogged and they don't clog suddenly. They, they, they clog a little bit at a time and all of a sudden it gets to that critical uh, part. Well, that's what he was saying to the church at Ephesus. He, he, he was saying, not that you're not loving me, but you're, you're, not, you're, not, you're loving me less. The love's less church because they had left their what kind of love? Their first love. And in any marriage relationship, that's when things get dangerous, when all of a sudden the love relationship is no longer primary. You might be still doing a lot of good things, but if that relationship, that love relationship is not first, there's danger in that union. And so he speaks and says, I got this one thing against you, one thing. You have left your first love. And then he turned to the church at Smyrna. The church at Ephesus is the love's less church. The church in Smyrna was the suffering church. Now, I just give you handles for each of these churches, so maybe they might you know, trigger memory of, of some main points there. But we could, have, we could have labeled that church in a variety of ways. We could call it the purified church. Purified church in the sense that in the midst of all that they were suffering, what happened is they didn't get bitter, they got, they got what? They got better. And, and what was a cause for them maybe to want to run from where God had planted them as God's church, they realized that sometimes the things that we don't want in our life are the, the best things for us. And so the suffering allowed them to put Christ first and love Him first. And so they were a purified church to the point where Jesus had no words of correction for them. And, instead of hearing from Jesus, I've got to... I, I gotta, a thing against you, they didn't hear any of that because they were a suffering church that had become better rather than bitter. Well, this morning we're looking at another church. And it's the church at Pergamum, and, and I think it's the King James Version that says Pergamus, and that's just a textual debate there. And it's a church in which we'll see that he has a few things against them. But we need to understand that just like in churches today, as churches then, there were good things happening, and often there were some corresponding bad things happening. And so he, he commends them as well as condemns them. But he begins by again unveiling the revelation, which is a picture of Jesus. And we've seen that Jesus is always, already the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is the beginning and the end. But what we see here is Jesus pictured, well, let's just read it. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamon write, the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword says this. Now, however you picture that, I, I, I think the message is pretty clear. That you know, when, uh, in the days when spanking was considered normal, okay, and, and uh, when I had misbehaved and, and my, my dad brought an instrument of discipline, it, it didn't take a whole lot of brilliance on my part to figure out, I must have done something what? Wrong. And, and so he brings the two-edged sword and says, I, I, I've got something that I need to do surgery on your life about. And, and we know that, that Jesus as the, the living word also gives us 
the written word, which is also living. And the Bible is also described in sword-like language. In Ephesians 6, it says that it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Then in Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to, to divide both soul and spirit and to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I think all of us are amateur uh, people readers. Would anybody admit to that? You kind of read people, kind of watch them, try to figure out what's going on, what, tick, what's, what makes them tick and what makes them ticked off. Anybody ever do that? Um, now, it'd be interesting for us to discuss our, between ourselves, what kind of batting average do you have in terms of always getting it right? You know, and some of us might feel we've got a better batting average than others, but sometimes I'm convinced you know, something's going on in a person's life and I find I'm, I'm totally wrong. Well, when Jesus looks at us, he knows exactly what's going on. Not only on, on the surface, but below the surface. And so he tells the church, that I, I'm, I'm coming, and I've got this, this instrument of surgery that needs to happen among you. But he begins uh, with good news, okay? And before I guess I go on, uh, I never look what's up on the screen, but the, the next fill in the blank is, uh, the, the church of Pergamon is the compromising church. To give you the kind of the label before we look at where, where we get that. This is a church that was doing a lot of things right, but then there were some things they were just not paying attention to. And because of that, some things were starting to creep in. And this wasn't healthy for them. And it might not have been measurable to begin with, but Jesus could say, if this continues, it's going to rot away at the core of your witness for Christ. But, but let me tell you what you're doing well. Let me commend you first. And, and this is what he says in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. It's kind of interesting description of where they were located as a church. Um, what I, I, wasn't there a great debate recently in Huntington Beach related to another tr uh, city up north, and they were trying to figure out who was Surf City? Remember that? And, and it was a big debate, you know, we are surf city. No, we're a surf city. How would you like to? We are Satan city. Anybody want that one? And let's debate with another city. Who gets that as a label for us? Come to our city because we're Satan city. Well, that's what he's saying there. I, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. It's where Satan's throne is. But then he commends them. Even in the midst of that, you hold fast my name. And do not even deny my faith, even... He goes on to another level, even the days of Antipas. And you're thinking, is that some horrific leader? No, that's a good leader. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And let me give you my two points, and then we'll go back and look at it. But basically, I'm committing you for two reasons. One is, you are faithful even with the attacks of Satan. And then also, you are faithful even with the loss of your shepherd. And we'll see where I get that in a few moments. But let, let's just talk about having your membership or your attendance in a church in a, that lives in a city where, where Satan dwells. Yeah, sometimes we, we, we get confused with simple things in the Bible. And, and if you ask a lot of Christians, you say, well, where, where does Satan live? Where does the devil live? Now, a lot of people mistakenly would say he lives in, help me out here, 
He lives in hell. It's all right to say hell in church. Not outside the church, but you can say hell. No. Yeah, he, he lives in hell. He, he doesn't live in hell yet. Okay? He's not in the, the, the lake of the fire. He's going to be in a place of judgment. But at 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, you, you might want to write that down. I didn't put it in your outline this morning. It says that Satan is the god of this, what? World. He lives in the world. That's where he lives. So to say he lives in this particular city is, is not beyond the scope of, of a biblical worldview because we don't think he lives in hell. Now, he's not omnipresent. He doesn't live everywhere. His demonic forces live everywhere on this planet. But he, he lives in this world. And, and basically what, what Jesus was saying to John is this is a place where his involvement is intense. You know, we talked about Surf City, Las Vegas is probably called, what city? Sin City. Okay, well, wherever you might imagine being a, a place you might not want to go to thinking that's where your spiritual life would flourish, this is, this is that place. But the good news was, look at, even in this kind of place, you are faithful. You are faithful. And I think there's a devotional thought for us all, is, is that we need to, to recognize it, it doesn't matter where you live or for that matter even where you are at any moment of time you are equipped to be able to withstand the attacks of the evil one because for the believer who always goes with you jesus god's with you and they understood that and they could they could withstand the attacks and not deny the faith when every pressure around them was pushing them toward that. There's a lot of conjecture as why that was named the kind of the, the city where Satan dwells. Uh, part of it was it was in a very intense religious uh, city. They had four major gods they were worshiping all the time. Every year they had a proclaimed uh, seizure as Lord. Uh, they, they had this massive statue of Zeus. And if you've been reading through us in the book of Daniel, and that's what that personal time with God is all about, you remember Nebuchadnezzar made a statue of himself, remember that? And it was a rather large statue. If you've been to the Staples Center, they have some statues of the basketball players there, you know, Magic Johnson, and I think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and a few other other players there. Uh, and they're basically life-size, okay? Well, Nebuchadnezzar made a statue of him that was beyond life-size. It was 90 feet, remember that? Well, there was a bigger one of Zeus in the city of Pergamos, or Pergamum. It was 112 feet, history tells us, high on a platform that was 18 feet high. And its width was 112 feet. No, 112 feet this way, and I forget what the other part was. Anyway, it was pretty large the other way as well. Somehow I left my brain, all right? It was a big statue. And so the worship of a false god was very prominent. And the pressure to somehow take your faith in a God they could not see and somehow say, well, I, I, I like Zeus too. You know? But they wouldn't do that. And, and we need to recognize, no matter, again, wherever we're at, God goes with us. And sometimes God will put us in strange places. But we don't have to be afraid. Some of you know that I, uh, this past week I, I went to a four-day conference, a Bible conference um, at a seminary, and there were... There were, there were pastors from all 50 states and 70 countries. There was 4,000 pastors at this conference. Well, 
I, I chose to, to uh, I, I've been to that conference before, and I, they, they recommend this hotel, which is kind of a nice hotel, but it's kind of an expensive hotel, and I'm kind of one of those cheap guys, and so, well, I don't need an expensive hotel, I'm just sleeping there, I, I don't go there to recreate at the hotel, and so I, I went online, and I, and I, I kind of picked a, a, you know, and they have five, they, they put hotels with stars, okay, the, the one we were in, the first year I ever went to was a five-star, this was a two-star one, okay. So I, I left the conference one night, the first night I was there, and this is in Reseda. I don't know if you know where Reseda is. Okay, so went down, um, you know, Roscoe, turned left on Reseda, and it was at 9.30 night, and I'm just ready to go. It was the first night. I was kind of tired that night, and I thought, oh, I can't wait to get to the hotel, and they had police everywhere. <laughs> and uh, they had the flares out, and, and I could see my hotel. I could walk to it where they stopped me, and I tried to talk them into it. I said, no, you can't because there's been a shooting right next to your hotel at the CVS. And um, we can't let you in. So, so not always liking to take no for an answer. So I went on the other side. You know, I went around and I counted the police on the other side and they said the same thing to me. So then I went on the other side and, and they said the same thing to me. So, so then I, 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 I'm, I'm stuck there. I, I, I can walk to my hotel room, but they won't let me in. So, so, so there's a Denny's right down the corner. So I go in the Denny's. And so I'm in the Denny's and I, ask, and I call up the the um, the desk at the hotel I'm, I'm going to be at or motel I'm going to be at and they said well this usually doesn't last too long I mean, usually this happened a lot and, uh, and he said it'll probably be about 30 minutes and I said okay that's fine well that was at 9.30 they got to 10 and then it got to 10.30 and then it got to 11 and then it got to midnight and then it got to 1 and then it got to 2 and then it got to 3 and at 3.30 they opened up the highway now let me just put this in context. I mean, it, it, the, I had inconvenience. But really, there was, there was nothing to be afraid about. And, and really, the people that need prayer was the families of those three people who got shot and the five suspects they were trying to find. And, and in the midst of you, you we, we could debate how wise a decision it was for me to pick this two-star hotel in a kind of a the area, but, but the idea of being fearful didn't even come into my mind because God is with us. And, and to think that he was praising this band of believers in the midst of intense things going on, you have remained faithful. Th- there was another God that they worshipped in that particular city. It was the God Escapolex, who was the serpent God. Which kind of gives the idea, serpent, Genesis 3, serpent, tempting Adam and Eve. And they had this practice where they would, they would bring people into a temple. And there was all kinds of non-poisonous snakes in that community. And they'd have people lie on the ground and just snakes would crawl over them. And that's where they put their faith in to get well. And, and the best place to be a witness for Christ is in a place where people need to know Christ. And so wherever people are located, um, we can pray for them maybe more intensely depending on how physically dangerous it might be, but God is always with them. So he commended them to, that they were standing firm in the midst of the attack of Satan. In your outline this morning, how the passage in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, which simply says that, that if we put on the full armor of God, that we'll be able to stand against the schemes of the wiles or the attacks of the evil one. The Bible says, actually in James chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, 
and he will flee from you. So he commends them for being faithful in the midst of the attacks with Satan. The other interesting thing, what he says, you've also been faithful with Anaphas. When he died, and you didn't flee. And why did he die? Because he was my witness. He was a faithful one. And, and, and really what he was saying, you are faithful even when you've lost your shepherd. And, and this speaks, again, to, to God's church and commending God's people when, when their pastor leaves for whatever reason, they don't leave with him. Just this past year, there was a pastor who has had much prominence in our, in our nation. But for a variety of reasons, he had to step down from his church, a church in uh, Oregon. 10,000 at least in attendance. When he stepped down, the church had to close its doors. People just left. And what he was telling them, you have been faithful even, even when your, your pastor or shepherd left. See, we are called not to follow a man, but to follow the man, Jesus. The, the word for witness is an interesting word. He was my witness. It's a word in the Greek that's translated into the English language, witness. But it's a word that we don't, that we don't use in the same way if we use it literally or, or, or if we... we transliterate into our our language it's the word martyr the word martyr came to know what we take it to mean someone dying for something they believe in because in that early day many christians leaders died precisely because they were faithful witness to christ and so it came to know if you're a witness that means you're probably going to die pretty soon now that didn't happen to everyone in the church obviously but it happened often to the leadership and so you have remained faithful even when that happened and I have an example in your, in your outlines this morning about how Paul, when Paul left, you know, they were shocked, but, he, but they remained faithful. So he commends them for that. Well, what does he, what does he have against them? Well, let's look at verse um, 14. He'll have a few things against you. And really what it is, you're compromised. Now let's look at the two ways they compromise. They compromise by falling after false teaching. Not outside the church, but inside the church. But I have a few things against you because you have, there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Now, that's a mouthful, but basically there were some people within the church who were kind of saying, well, you know, there, there are certain things we don't have to be so strict on. You know, we, we ought to just lighten up. And he said, this is like the teaching of Balaam. Now, I encourage you to, to do the Bible study, you know, the sermon-based Bible study that's in the back part of your outline. Because in the book of Numbers, it goes through that whole story of Balaam. And it's a fascinating story about Balaam. Balaam was a, was a prophet, and he was a prophet gifted by God, but he wasn't a prophet following God, which is an interesting thing as well. You can have very gifted people and you're, that gift could be natural talents that God has given them or spiritual talents God has given them. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're, they're pointing people the right direction in following God. This is a man who had the ability to do prophetic uh, statements, predicting the truth and doing some things in a pronounced way. And so the king of Moab, 
And King Moab was watching Israel coming into the promised land saying, oh, what are we going to do with these people? We, we got to stop them. And so they, he went to Balaam and said, is there somehow you can curse them and they, they, you know, disrupt all that they're doing? And Balaam said, well, I can try. I don't think that's going to happen because they follow the true God. And, and, and God said, you can't, you're not going to curse my people. But God filters the trials that God's people were going to go through to, to, to test their faithfulness. And so he allowed Balaam to teach Balak. And what he taught Balak, he says, well, I, I can't do anything pronounced to stop them. You know, God is faithful to them. But I can, I can tell you what to do to mess them up. Uh, just have them compromise their faith. And, and the way they can compromise their faith is take a little of the, of the religions of the, the land of the Canaanites and kind of mix them with your stuff. You know, if, if Jesus is good, why don't I just add a few other things to Jesus and then we have a lot more to, to play with. They started doing that. They kind of put some of that mixture of the land into their faith. And the other thing, they, they, he said, well, just mess them up a little bit in terms of their ethical and moral standards, particularly as it relates to marriage. And, and so what he did, and this is what really messed up Israel, the, the king of Moab said, let's, let's send our, our best men, our best women into the land of Israel and have them marry within the nation of the covenant people of God. And that's what they did. And so lives that were singularly devoted to God, Yahweh, as their singular provider, and the one they, they had the most allegiance and faithfulness to, it, it, it got mixed when there were unequally yoked people in relationships. And, and that happens all the time in the church as well, where where we don't condemn people who, who don't believe. We love them and desire for them to come to faith. But God's clear. Don't mix a non-believer and a believer in that most intimate of relationships, marriage, because it will affect their faith and then their kids' faith. Now that happens. And if you're in that, God is gracious and will give you strength. But we need to be clear that should not happen in the lives of those who follow Christ. And we want to protect our children from making that spiritually deadly compromise. So he says, I have this against you. You're taking Balaam-like teaching and, and, and not being faithful to what has been clear. And then he says in verse 50, he says, so you also have some who, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And again, he's saying not everyone in that church was doing that, but there were enough doing that that was becoming part of the flavor of the day. Now, I, I want to throw this out to you for free. So, some of you, as you read the Bible, you, you get to certain sections, and, and you just get so much out of it, and you, you see how God wants us to understand his word. And then you get into certain sections or certain parts of sections, and you go, I don't have any idea what this means. And, and there's good reason why you don't have any clue to what it means, because God doesn't tell us what it means. Okay? He wrote it to them, and when he wrote it to them, they knew what it meant. But uh, some things we can understand in the Bible because we can compare Scripture with Scripture. For instance, we can understand what the, ba the teaching of Balaam is because we can go back in the Old Testament and read about it. You look at the teaching of Nicolaitans, you go, well, what cross-reference do I turn to? You can go, uh, some have supposed, and possibly accurately, that 
the, Nic the teaching of the Nicolaitans goes back to a man named Nicholas, who was one of the deacons in Acts chapter 6. Well, even if that is true, and it might be true, that still doesn't tell you what his teaching is. So what is it? And, and the only way we can understand here, well, let me, let me give you a couple things. One is, when we come to certain parts in God's Word where we don't know what it means, we can still get the principle. The principle is, this teaching was something that was contrary to God's teaching, so they shouldn't have messed with it. If that's all we know about the, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, that's sufficient. Okay. Now, how we understand some possibilities of what it might mean is through extra-biblical writings and history, and, and so there's some things we could possibly put together that might be the teaching of the Nicolaitans. One, which is not the view I put in the outline, uh, or the outline you know, this morning in the preaching as well as the Bible study, is saying it's, it's, it's like the teaching of Balaam. So there had to be some kind of compromising, maybe in the moral area, and so some, many take it this way, that what it was is that, that Nic the Nicolaitan teaching was, this is probably much more information than you want to know, but it's helpful for you to understand this whole project, okay? It was pre-Gnostic teaching. We know historically that Gnostic teaching was that which um, people within the church said, well, you know, it's all about being spiritually right with God. Now, we would agree with that. That makes sense. Well, if it's all about being spiritually right with God, it really doesn't really matter that much what you do physically, because God is concerned about the inside more than the outside. Well, that makes sense. Well, therefore, as you go through life, just be concerned about the spirit and don't worry about what you do physically. Well, you take that pretty far down the line, there's all kinds of things you can start doing that will be destructive for you. You know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee immorality. It's a sin against your own body. And so it was a, a teaching of uh, hyper grace, grace where you, you, you don't have to worry about because we're, we're sin abound, grace abounds more. Romans chapter 6. Of course, the latter part of that says, well, does that mean you got to sin so grace abound more? May that never be. We shouldn't sin more so we can see God's abundant ability to forgive. So that's a possibility. The other possibility, it comes from maybe looking at the word Nicolaitan, and it, does that give us a clue? Sometimes uh, words or even names will give you a clue as far as what that person is teaching. Okay. Well, Nicolaitan is, is basically two different words. It, uh, Nike, you're familiar with Nike, you know, the, that particular check on people's uh, tennis shoe or basketball shoe. And, and the word Nike literally means to, to win or to be victorious or to conquer, to be superior. And, and then laetans has the idea from laity from which we get the word people. And so it was the conquering people or the, the conquered people or the, the leading people. And, and so the idea was there that they were falling into the the rut of saying, well, you know, there's certain Christians that are more important than others. And we, we, ought to be make, we ought to be a respecter of people. And so they were kind of dividing the unity of the people. And we know some of that happened in the church as well because in 1 Corinthians, remember, they were, well, I'm a, I'm a Cephas, I'm a Peter. Well, I'm a Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. And then the super spiritual said, well, I'm of Christ. Well, and so they were dividing the people about who, who's your favorite preacher or teacher? Who, who do you really follow after? And they were missing the point. You know, it's the word of God that's our source of authority. It's not personality. And so it was dividing them. They were kind of personality-driven. But whatever it was, was they, they, they were compromising what was clear. Now follow Christ, the living word, and follow the written word and be faithful. So he had a couple of things again. They were beginning to compromise in how they lived and how they followed Christ. But as we, as we hear these strong words to this church, and the application for us is 
maybe in those not some of it might be in those specific areas, but it might be in any area where where we're we're compromising, we're we're kind of pushing back from where we used to be, and we're starting to be involved in some things that 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 don't build us up spiritually, but bring us down. And that can happen in so many different ways. And if you just think about it for a while, are there some things I'm involved in now that kind of derail me in my faith rather than enhance my faith? That's not that bad. A lot of people are doing this. That's not just a a thing that teenagers say. Adults say it all the time as well. And so their faith became compromised. What's the correction? Real quickly. Very simple. Verse 16. Therefore, repent... Or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Uh, the, I, you know, the, the course direction is pretty simple. You're going down one path, turn around and go the other way. Stop it. Just stop following the compromising faith of the, the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans and Balaam. Don't, don't compromise. Jesus ends in a, in a high note with his church. He says, okay, I, I've warned you, I've... I, I've challenged you. I've, I've commended you. Let me, let me comfort you. Look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. He says, okay, if you listen to me, respond to me, if you repent, if you become obedient, if you don't compromise, if you follow me fully and faithfully, I'll let you know I'm going to give you hidden manna. You think, what in the world does that mean? Well, there we can kind of put the pieces together pretty easily. What was, what was manna? Manna was that which God gave from above to the people of Israel as they're going through uh, the exodus, as they're going to the promised land, and they were, they were wondering, where, where's the next meal going to come from? How are we going to feed these millions of people going through the, you know, the, the desert? And God says, I will provide. And he sent down food from heaven, manna. The word manna is, when they first saw it, they go, what is this? That's what, in the Hebrew, what is it? What it was was God's provision for them. As they were struggling physically, this gave them physical strength. But he says, I've got something much better for you. Not, not, Not manna that you could see, and they could see the manna in Exodus. I'm going to give you manna you cannot see, but it's going to give you much more than Physical man I gave. Physical man I gave you physical strength, but I'm going to give you spiritual strength. And so as we think about what the Christian life is all about, it's about that which God puts within so that we can live in our outward behavior. So I'm going to give you that which you cannot see, but that which will give you the strength to live out your faith. Hidden man. I told them in the first service that we were going to give manna in, in, in the fellowship time, but it was hidden. They might not be able to see it, but anyway. And then he says, I'm also going to give you something. I'm going to give you a white stone. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he receives it. So he's going to give him a, a rock, you know, a piece of stone. It was going to be white. And you're thinking, well, what does that mean? Well, here, again, culturally uh, of that day, this is, the, this is the best idea as far as probably what it meant. When, when they would hold athletic games, there would be people that would you know, win, there would be people who would lose, and then... There'd be this like at, at uh, the Grammys or, or um, the Academy Awards or the after parties. You know, you, you, you go to the award ceremony, then everybody goes to the after party. Well, after the, 
the, the games, the athletes wanted to go to the party, but it, wasn't, it was only by imitation. Not everyone got in. The ones that got in were given a stone, and their name was put on it. It was a ticket to come to the party. I don't think it takes a whole lot for us to figure out what he's talking about here. I, I, I want you to be not only spiritually strengthened, but I want you to be spiritually secure. I want you to know that, that you have that ticket to get in the after party, which God has prepared for all those who know him and love him. For I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. And so he's going to put a name on it. And that name is, it's, it's a name we don't know. So don't ask me after the service, what is that name? It tells us we don't know it. No one knows it. But we know what kind of name it's going to be. It's going to be a new name. And it's a, it's a new name, not in terms of time, you know, it's like it's never been given before, but it's a new name. That's the word chronos in the original language, Greek. It's a kainos name, which means it's, a, it's a, a new name in quality. You see, when we become a child of God, that's what we, we, we get a new name because our, our life is qualitatively different. We're new creatures in Christ. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come because of what Christ has done in us. So what's the point this morning? The point this morning is that, that, that we want to be commended for us being willing to go anywhere and everywhere for him because he goes with us. We, we want to be known as people that, that are, are faithful to him, no matter it be the attacks of the evil one or the attacks of, of things happening to people we care about around us that, that, that pass away maybe suddenly or horrifically, and yet that God is still faithful. And then in the midst of uh, the things that challenge us, we don't want to be compromising, but we want to be faithful. And then we need to realize it's, it's not our own strength that ha- that by, by how that happens. It's his inner manna that sustains us. And that reservation that's sent beforehand, that we can know for sure where we're going to spend eternity because, because God has made that reservation for us. Let's pray together. Father, if there be anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, we, we just ask that they might receive the invitation given by the living Christ for them. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into them. And we'll dine with him and he with me. And Father, that's just simply an invitation that we open up our lives to Jesus, to have him live in us, and that we live in him, and we seek to follow him fully and faithfully with all that we are. And when we do that, then you forgive us of our sin and make us a new person on the inside. And then, Father, if we come this morning and we're, we're just struggling, might we recognize that you're the one who gives us the strength and you're the one who gives us assurance that we can know what happens after this life so that we can live life in faithfulness and boldness. Help us to live for you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing this morning.